0: Is up, Ansel. I am smiling from ear to ear. We just recorded with Jeff Snyder, and this was probably the best show that we've done so far. How are you doing, my friend?
1: Oh man, Christian, I'm great. Yes, I agree. This was a it was a thrill for me, and I think we did a really great job. I mean, we'll play it for the everybody here in a second, but I think uh, we did a really good job circling all the way from a solid introduction of the Eurodollar system. Uh, circling all the way through that getting kind of at one point getting a deep dive into the euro dollar system and then bringing it back to bitcoin and a future monetary system so man yeah it was a really fun episode to do
0: yeah and something that just really stuck to my head is jeff jeff's opinion on gold was the exact opposite of danielle de mario booth's opinion on gold and bitcoin uh, like they could not have, uh, disagreed more. And it's just interesting that we are bringing on these type of fed insiders and, uh, yes. macro insiders, and they don't even agree about the future whatsoever. It just kind of shows, you know, this game, there's no masters. There's no true visionaries in this, in this game. Everyone is trying to just feel around and figure it out.
1: I mean, they both kind of have a insider perspective Danielle and Jeff are kind of polar opposites on some of these, I would say, forward-looking issues. I think they agree on all the backward-looking issues, but yeah, they don't They don't agree when they look into the future, where we're going over the next decade. Before
0: we get into the rest of the show, I want to do a quick plug. Make sure to check out Bitcoin Magazine, Bitcoin Magazine YouTube, and all the stuff that we're putting out. FedWatch is just a part of the Bitcoin Magazine family, and we're working hard to... Uh, Bring out the best Bitcoin-only and Bitcoin-forward content possible. Work real hard to uh, to educate the masses about you know what is coming in this this financial revolution.
1: Some really good shows on that feed over the last uh, couple weeks, guys. That was great.
0: Um, Antel, you
1: want to plug uh, the Bitcoin Dictionary and Bitcoin Markets? Yeah, bitcoinandmarkets.com for my uh, original podcast. That is. Still continuing, so make sure to stay subscribed over there. Um, and also my Bitcoin Dictionary book, Demystifying Bitcoin Jargon. It's a great introductory book for people to learn about um, Bitcoin jargon in general, but um, also it's um, a good book to for uh, a more experienced Bitcoiner to have so that they can quickly explain things to maybe p- noobs that they meet out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a resource for everyone, whether you're an expert or whether you're a noob. Uh, demystifying or just solidifying your knowledge of Bitcoin. Ansel does a fantastic job of digging into what a term actually means, but also the history behind it, giving examples like this. is It's a legit, legit uh, resource. So great job on that, Ansel. Um, we have uh, some quick updates across the Fed, general IMF, and, and Bitcoin before we get into this Jeff Snyder interview let's jump right into uh the most recent announcement um or conversation from jim of the fed jim uh
1: kuna yeah jim kuna he had i'm not sure exactly where this this um interview first appeared it might have been reuters but it was a couple days ago the uh, the link we provide is to payments.com and uh, jim kuna is uh, uh he works for the fed and he's working with the M- with mit in their I guess CBDC initiative. I don't know exactly what you would call it, but um, and his his comments were pretty uh, telling. On in this interview, he said, uh, "This is about experimenting for the purposes of educating ourselves and making sure that we really understand what the fundamental technology can do. It's not about going into production." Uh, and then he goes on in a different part and says um, that they're in talks with all of these global central banks in a collective dialogue moving forward so i thought this was interesting christian because uh, it shows um one that we kind of were right that uh these cbdcs are not in the near term at least a fed coin is not in the near term it's it's years and years out and also they are building this like coalition so if we do have a remake of uh, a reforging of a new monetary system like a Bretton Woods, then uh, this is the type of dialogue that we would expect. These banks working together and having an open dialogue about a future system.
0: Yeah, and, and I find it interesting, something that Jeff actually said is what impressed him most about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is that these future systems are being proven out in production Whereas you look on the flip side and you see these central bankers, these academics, these whatever, they're experimenting, they're tinkering, they're talking. But all the while, the open source system, the permissionless system is like growing and actually living. Um, And I I just think that like, how could, I I just don't even see how a Bretton Woods 2.0 that doesn't incorporate the open source system, the permissionless system that is being built out today um, how it will even be relevant or complete. If we get to that point, like Bitcoin will have already won, in my opinion. What do you think about
1: that? Yeah, the the first Bretton Woods was all about gold. It was a gold standard, right? Uh, the US dollar was pegged to gold and all other currencies were pegged to the US dollar. So a, a Bretton Woods 2.0 would be a remaking of the monetary system with pro- Bitcoin in the conversation. Um, I I don't know, like... Jeff um, also was saying there in the interview, does gold have a role in the future? Well, I I personally don't think it really does. Uh, it might be some sort of Bitcoin standard. And can you imagine if that happens?
0: Sounds like a dream scenario. Um, speaking of, you know, kind of leading us down this path to uh, hyper Bitcoinization, a Bitcoin uh, global monetary standard, the IMF, recently put out a educational video about what a cryptocurrency is in a tweet. I thought that this was pretty funny. And uh, it's just really interesting how the mind writer says Bitcoin just continues to uh, take over the world.
1: Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. A lot of Bitcoiners jumped on this. And um, like Pierre Rochard, he was saying, Oh, it's, it's all about scarcity. And that wasn't even mentioned in here. Like, how do you create digital scarcity? That's what cryptocurrency is all about creating digital scarcity and that wasn't even in there. I also noticed that, uh, they, the, my big takeaway was they, they said they treat it like magic. Oh, we just do this and we can get rid of the middleman like magic. All you got to do is use a blockchain and it's magically efficient with uh decentralized technology that can get rid of the middleman and the rent seekers. But obviously we know that's not the case. It's um, hugely inefficient and costs a lot to, uh, create decentralization.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, blockchain by itself, all of those things by themselves, they don't, blockchain doesn't have Bitcoin's inherent properties. Like the Bitcoin network, because of its evolution, because of adoption, because of people downloading the software, because of people mining the coins, because of people valuing the coins and trading in their fiat for the coins. Over time, the properties of decentralization, censorship resistant, peer to peer those emerge they're not intrinsic to blockchain they're not intrinsic to cryptocurrency they're not intrinsic to anything uh so i think that that's something that central bankers politicians shitcoiners and Bitcoin and blockchainers alike just don't understand quite yet
1: totally agree totally agree but it's good to see the imf doing this i heard uh i saw that this was actually from back in 2018 so it does make sense that some of their comments seemed a little bit dated uh and some of their understanding but even then it's like okay so 2018 these were at least 2014 or 15 talking points about digital currency Uh, so these these people are getting it slowly uh, and they're hopefully they catch up fast
0: so my take is a little different they're not getting it at all but they're inadvertently propagating the memes anyway so they're just a tool to bitcoin
1: Yeah, that's a good point. All right,
0: well, I mean, yeah, what do we got next? Uh, We got Bitcoin next. (laughs) A great analyst in the mining space, oh, God, a girl, Christy Lay Minahan, um, put out a kind of, uh, it's a tweet that is pumping that a major hardware manufacturer is getting into the Bitcoin ASIC game, and this is going to commodify the ASIC game forever and, you know, really change it. This is seems more like a rumor than anything else, although I tend to trust Christy. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of speculation around uh, a really big player jumping into the Bitcoin Yeset game?
1: Yeah, I saw this and it stuck in my mind because you've had her on uh, POV, I think a couple times, right? So
0: Yeah, I think she's been on three times. She may be the guest that came on. Really respect Christy. Go follow yeah.
1: her. Yeah, so um, th- this just stood out to me that w- with – on this show, we kind of talked about, yes, mining and hash rate becoming commoditized, uh, ASICs becoming commoditized, and so this just fit right in with that. I, It's a matter of time, whether it's this year or next year. Uh, this might be a rumor here. Uh, she has access to more insider information in like ASICs than we do, so uh, obviously her kind of opinion is more important than ours in this this matter. But in the future it's coming there's going to be samsung there's going to be intel there's going to be nvidia all these guys are going to be mass producing a6 for bitcoin so um it's just a matter of time
0: um it looks as though you know we have surpassed all time highs uh we have just increased difficulty by 3.6% and blocks are still coming about 15 seconds fast so price may be kind of leveling off or dipping down right now but uh people with real skin in the game are you know signing energy contracts, buying ASICs, and, uh, and really just continuing to fortify the Bitcoin network in a you know, very long-term thinking set kind of way.
1: Yeah, I've said for a long time that I think it's um, a, a just what we should expect from an average uh, difficulty adjustment is around 2% a 2% just is going to be like a steady state for a very long time. Anything below 2% means there's actually a change. Uh, There's some hash rate that's come off. If it's above 2%, that means that there's um, addition, uh, extra addition of hash rate. But I think um, a normal uh, adjustment should be around 2% if it's going up at 3% here. So yes, even though the price is flat, there is extra hash rate being added. So I think it's, very interesting. So, Good thing.
0: I guess speaking of that, uh, I think – so I did read the stat line a little bit wrong. Uh, the, so I was correct. The last difficulty adjustment was about 3.6%. That 15-second that uh, faster block time, that was actually last during the last uh, difficulty period. This current difficulty period, blocks are actually coming slow, uh, and we're looking at about a 10% difficulty adjustment. And the explanation Whoa. for this is the massive flooding in China. So there's oh. massive flooding in the Sheswan region. It's taking out a lot of warehouses that are in that region. Uh, and we're seeing a significant drop off in hash rate. You know, not everything is peachy in, in Bitcoin mining land. I think that that does prove out your point that, you know, 2% is healthy. Uh, anything less than that is showing that something is actually going wrong in the real network.
1: Yeah, that's interesting that this, this hash rate's happening now because floods have been going on over there in that province uh, for a month or two even already um maybe this this is a good way to to see what's actually happening because when when power plants get taken offline that i think that's what would affect these miners i i think the miners are smart enough to not be in these valleys you know they, they're probably somewhere in the mountains um something like that so they're they're kind of uh, i would say their facilities might be safer uh, that's just me trying to be logical about this but um Uh, the power plants themselves could be taken out by flooding and you know the big big one is three gorges dam biggest uh, hydro power plant if that goes offline i mean how many miners will go offline so yeah uh, yeah but what do you think about the is is there a concentration of mining in china as bad as it was in years past or do you think that's starting to get fleshed out
0: a, uh, an ETH head that I regularly, uh, argue with on Twitter, uh, Joe Peters, he actually quoted this, this statistic to me recently as a reason why hash rate is so centralized in China. And what I'm saying is like centralization of hash rate in any given geography, um, is not intrinsic to the system. It is just the current way it is. Um, Bitcoin does not have written in its code be centralized in China, you know? so. Um, Things like this, infrastructure going down, um, lack of political stability. There's so many factors that are effective. A place is suitable for mining long-term. Um, and you know, seeing these issues in China with the Three Gorges Dam, seeing the, the inherent issues that come with the type of infrastructure building that they have done for the past 30 years, where it's really just top-down decision-making, not a whole lot of uh, review um, or pushback. Is kind of hurt, you know, shooting China in the foot from a mining perspective. So we already knew that there's a massive concentration of miners in that region. I don't think it's a big enough concentration to compromise the Bitcoin system. And uh, over time, you know, we are seeing the momentum of mining move away from China, and I just suspect that this to continue to be a catalyst for that.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm not an expert in. like how mining actually gets broadcast, how blocks get broadcast, how mining pools hook together. But I would assume that people belonging to some, uh, you know, they're in the U.S. or they're in South America or wherever they're mining, and they uh, are hooked up to one of the mining pools that is headquartered in Sichuan. Maybe that looks like it's coming from Sichuan when it's really coming from uh, Georgia or, washington state or something like that so I, I don't know how that all works out but i think it's the centralization of mining in china has gotten a lot better i would not put it over 50 percent of the hash rate is not in china
0: it doesn't even benefit chinese miners to be centralized in china they're also True. trying to decentralize so they can become
1: more robust and the reality is yeah, that- just look at these look at these floods if they I if mean, they put all their eggs in in sichuan then they're, they're screwed Exactly. Um, so uh, I
0: think the incentives are still aligned here and mining will continue to further decentralize. Don't un- like, I feel like people don't understand that before mining was centralized in China, it was centralized to one person and then two people. This is a process of <laughs> adopt people adopting Bitcoin mining. So it's just going to take time, patience and long-term thinking. I think this is a good place to transition again into the interview with Jeff Snyder. Uh, I'm going to title this interview Banking in the Shadows because really that's what Jeff is trying to expose is the fact that the current system is completely operating in the shadows. He wanted us to make sure to mention that this is very, very high level introduction content into this extremely nuanced topic in which, you know, Jeff and Alhambra, you know, they've pretty much dedicated the last, you know, few years of content production from their uh, organization to demystifying this. So there's a ton of ton of resources into the euro dollar system into what Jeff is talking about. And this is just scratching the surface. So if you thought this was interesting, if you like this, really highly encourage that you check out, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of interviews uh, and blog posts and videos that Jeff has produced.
1: Yeah, I forgot to mention this to him. Uh, there in the interview. I was going to say this. Um, he needs to write a book. I hope he does soon because yeah, you, he has a ton of content out there and this is just scratching the surface, but Jeff, if you're listening, we, we need a book, buddy.
0: That's enough of us. Let's get into this fantastic interview with Jeff Snyder.
1: All right, everybody. I'm super excited to have our guest today, Jeff Schneider. Uh, he is one of my favorites that I watch pretty much every piece of content that he puts out, uh, but he is the head of global research at Alhambra investments. He writes fantastic blog posts there. Uh, That really make you think about the monetary system um, and all things macro. Um, He appears on many macro podcasts. Um, I've listened to him for years going back to macro voices and now he's doing a new podcast that I absolutely love called Making Sense. It's the Eurodollar University um, over there on YouTube. Of course, we'll link to all of these in the show notes. Super excited to have him. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
2: Thanks for having me, Ansel. I'm excited to be here.
1: Okay. So um, one thing that got me really into your content over the last couple of years is waiting for the inevitable you know, Austrian hyperinflation of the, the, the dollar, basically. But as it, we got to the end of the system and we saw the yield curve inverting in 2019 and you know, the end of this cycle and there was no inflation, I, I had to question my assumptions. And so I, that's one reason uh, why I'm really glad that you put out the stuff that you do because it, it is a very good explanation of what's going on.
2: To jump in here, I think that's a yeah. fairly common common uh, perception, especially when you get into 2016 and 2017. I think a lot of people really really bought into the idea that it was just time that you know after the Great Recession, the first global financial crisis, the system just needed time. It needed enough, you know, Fed massaging and hand holding, whatever you want to call it. But the Fed, you know, keeping things relatively steady, that was a perception. And that given enough time, eventually these things would start working in the way that we were all taught that these things were supposed to work. But when you actually looked at the markets, especially in 2015 and 2016, what they were telling you is that, hey, man, there's something really wrong here. Things are not going the way they're supposed to go.
0: Uh, A lot of Bitcoiners, listeners of this show, really fall in line with gold bugs, preppers, people that were thinking it's time. Can you kind of jump into how the euro dollar system works, how the system works uh, and, you know, why Why is it different than, you know, what the average, you know, kind of gold bug is thinking?
2: Well, I think, you know, but again, what we're really taught, we're all taught in the same thing. We're taught in economics class that, you know, monetary systems are national systems. They're almost like, not only are they a national system, they're almost like entirely closed systems. So think of it like a bathtub. And the Federal Reserve is essentially the, the faucet going into the U.S. bathtub and that there's really not a whole lot that goes on that's interesting outside of the US or even even between systems. And so that's I think the framework that people understand. And so they think if the Fed is filling up the bathtub, eventually that bathtub is going to overflow with what we call inflation or you know, devaluing the currency, destroying it, whatever you want to call it. But in reality, what, what what's actually happening out there is this global monetary system called the Eurodollar system. It is immense. It's vast. It's huge. And it's almost a Wild West system because there are no central banks operating out there. In fact, that's the whole reason it developed the way it did was that the banking system wanted to get out from under a lot of the regulations, especially 1930s depressionary regulations. We had also the need for this globalizing world economy that required a monetary system that would be able to finance and offer the monetary resources for globalization to happen. So you had all of these things combining together to create what is essentially shadow money in an immense shadow money system that's centered on all of these global banks operating in the offshore space, which is basically offshore means anything anywhere outside of the United States. So you have this all denominated in dollars, but it's not really operating in the dollar. What we conceive of is popular. conceive of as the dollar area. So that's where the Euro dollar term comes in. It means offshore dollars, which is really this, global shadow money system that is that actually ap- operates as the global reserve currency so
0: can we can you dive into that a little bit more can you tease out what is different that, uh, between you know shadow dollar denominations and actual US dollars that the Fed kind of controls
2: I think what a lot of people conceive of is that there's pallets of cash floating around outside the United States I mean the historical term for euro dollar was a deposit of US dollars on deposit someplace outside the U.S., outside the United States. So immediately I think your mind is drawn to the idea that there's physical Federal Reserve notes out there being used and transmitted between these banks. What we're we're really talking about is an evolutionary step beyond that, where these are all bank liabilities and assets. So these are banks transacting with each other, um, essentially ledger transactions from one bank to another, which accomplishes the same kind of a task if you were moving currency around. So it's a currencyless, reserveless system that is entirely based upon the banks that operate in this this basically, you know, world-spanning dark space, which is why we call it shadow money because it's it's never been studied, it's never really been looked at, and for a long time, nobody really seemed to care. So it, it's operated in the shadows quite literally for a very long time.
1: Moving on to the next question, uh, we talked about on our show, or we read a speech by one of the Vice presidents at the New York Fed. I can't remember her name now. It's not Lale Brainerd, but it's one of those. And in her speech, she talked about funding markets being pr- uh, primary to, you know, all other markets, especially as far as liquidity goes. But they didn't quite understand why that was. She left it hanging <laughs> with the question at the end, saying, "But we don't exactly know what the mechanisms are here. So, can you describe maybe the relationship between the funding markets? What are the funny uh, funding?" Money markets um, and how they relate to the economy in general.
2: Well, I'm not surprised that the New York Fed uh, either admitted or um, answered the, or stated the question that way because the federal the Federal Reserve has very little to no idea what actually goes on in the monetary system. And I know that's that's a hard it's a big leap for a lot of people to make because again we're all taught that the, the central bank is the center of not just the, the economy, but the, especially the monetary system, right? That's what a central bank is supposed to be. The word bank is in the title. You know, the fact that the, the New York Fed or any of the Fed doesn't really know how the system works is actually, you know, consistent with the idea of shadow money. And, and really have to, before we get to the question of what are funding markets, we have to understand how it got to be that way. And really what happened to be, you know, to put to, put, to give you a brief overview was that back in the 1950s and 60s, even before then, but in the 1950s and 1960s, the idea of money itself began to evolve such that it it, it no longer looked like the way money had looked like before. Again, we're talking about these kinds of interbank transactions, these ledger transactions, kind of fuzzy virtual money being transmitted all over the world for the first time in human history. And it didn't fit within the, the uh, traditional definitions of what money was. Everybody thinks of base money, M0, M1, which is a broader definition, M2, these kinds of things. But we found out in the 1960s, and we're talking the 1960s, more than 50 years ago, that these, these traditional definitions, M0, M1, M2, were increasingly obsolete. So if you're a central bank and your whole, your whole purpose is the monetary system you find out, oh, crap, I don't even know how to define money anymore because banks are using all of these strange, weird kinds of forms of monetary transmissions that actually do things in the real economy. Therefore, they fall outside of the traditional definitions. As a central bank, what do you do? And so in the 1960s, and especially the 1970s during the great inflation, central bankers essentially had a very stark choice to make. Do they go back and start to redefine money in these modern formats and try to bring these you know, M3, M4, develop new definitions that incorporate all of these different things? Or do they say, screw it, we're not going to bother. We're going to try to float above everything. We're going to control an interest rate and we'll get the banking system to do it on our behalf. And we won't have to, we don't care about the details because if we move the federal funds rate around a little bit here or there, whichever direction we want, we believe the banking system will just act in accordance with it. and Therefore, the banking system We'll figure out all these fuzzy virtual details that we don't know about. And so for many decades, that's how it worked. Alan Greenspan, for example, the maestro, what did he do? All he did was move the federal funds rate around, and he expected that the banking system would work out all of these complex monetary forms in the way that he wanted them to. So if he increased the federal funds rate, he believed that banks would act by creating uh, by, by creating a drag in credit creation, and money creation. He didn't know how they did it. He didn't know why they did it or what they did when they did it. He just thought, well, I'll raise the Fed funds rate. The banking system will take care of the details and it'll all work beautifully. What we found out in 2007, especially August 9th, 2007, from there forward, was that's not how it works. That you do need a little bit of detail. And that the Federal Reserve actually got so detached from the monetary system, we had this entire monetary evolution take place outside of it. So, we have what are essentially the shadow money world spanning global monetary euro dollar system that impacts not just financial markets like you know bonds and, and derivatives and sorts those sorts of things but actually does impact the real economy. There are real effects to all this because we need money money isn 't wealth money is a tool it allows the real economy to to undertake efficient transactions and to undertake you know to finance good ideas to to create globalization, for example, to, to get the grease the wheels, to get um, trade going from one place to another. So restriction of money or creation of money is really a real economy a phenomenon. So if you have this monetary system that works outside of the, the traditional defend, the definitions and convention, and then it starts to go awry, that can be a real drag on real 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 economy transactions and functions that, uh, that, that, that hold back the way the economy is supposed to work. And so that breaks down the entire theory from one, one end to the other, from top to bottom. You know, the Fed isn't getting control of anything because it doesn't know what it actually controls or if it does control anything.
1: Yeah, you bring up uh, the definition of money, and that's one of my big sticking points is that we don't know what money is anymore. So it's not M1, it's not M2. They stopped publishing M3 a while ago. Uh, and every single crisis, we might have to have a new M like m we'd be on like m10 definition of money by now so um yeah i think it's it's very interesting in that respect
2: yeah and Uh, i agree with you i say that all the time you know this euro dollar we gotta remember this is evolution and evolution never stops we live in a very dynamic world so you know central banks are operating under 1950s view of the 1930s they give you an idea what they're talking about why they keep screwing it up i mean they, they, they're, they're not even, you know, they're several, several generations of technology behind and the euro dollar system today, you know, it broke down in August of 2007, but the, the system today is almost nothing like it was, you know, 13 years ago because you're right. Ansel so it, it continually evolves. And so I think that's one of, you know, that's one of the reasons why central bankers back in the seventies and eighties decided screw it. I mean, we can't do this. We can't define money anymore. So we're just going to have to find a way to operate a monetary policy where we don't even do that we don't define money anymore because it changes all the time and in fact it gets weirder and weirder and weirder the more more the uh, it evolves so you know you're right we'd probably be up on m32 by now or something ridiculous <laughs> and then yeah. of course you know as soon as you get m32 defined you got to do number 33 well it might it might
1: benefit them to keep the definition simple you know, to keep it back with M1 and M2, because now they can do this expectation ma- expectation management, which you talk about all the time. That is real monetary policy is saying, oh, we're going to have this flood of liquidity. The, the Fed has your back, the Fed put, right? So what do you think, what are your thoughts on the Fed put and expectation management?
2: Well, the Fed put doesn't exist. <laughs> well, okay, let's be clear. The Fed put exists as so long as people believe in it. That's what expectations policy really means. It means that the Fed, you know, we're all taught to believe in the Fed. We're all taught to believe that it has a printing press. And as long as we all believe that, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The Fred, all the Fed needs to do in its own mind is threaten to use the printing press and watch everybody scramble. Oh, my God, they're going to use the printing press. Inflation expectations seep in because we're taught to believe that the Fed can print money and markets being rational and efficient. Therefore, if the Fed says it's going to print money, we start acting in anticipation of them printing money. And therefore, inflationary things happen. The Fed doesn't ever ever have to print money. And the dirty little secret is they can't. They don't know how. You know, they create bank reserves, which is not really useful money. And so, is, so long as everyone believes, at least that's the theory, the expectations made theory is, so long as everyone believes the Fed can print money, all the Fed's got to do is threaten to print money and people will act in inflationary I mean. It sounds intuitive and it sounds actually logical because if you think the Fed's going to print money and inflation's going to happen you know, six months down the road, you're not going to wait for the inflation to show up because your costs are going to skyrocket. So you're going to start doing things today because you think that this, going to, this, this wave of inflation is going to happen. Of course, where it all breaks down, obviously, is that you know the world is not a fairy tale. And we actually do have a monetary problem. And it actually would be nice if the Fed knew how to print money because we need some. And so it's not good enough for people to believe in the Fed because if you don't actually have any money and you're waiting for the Fed to create some, well, you might just wait for the Fed to create some because you can't do anything in between, right? So it's, there's a big difference between expectations policy, which sounds like it's monetary policy, but it's really it's really mostly just pop psychology. Christian, do you have the next one you want me to go?
0: Yeah, no. So let's jump into this too. Like one of the activities that the Fed – operates in in order to try to maintain uh the illusion of the fed put is qe and changing monetary policy can you talk about like what is the connection between all of this and the fed's balance sheet and ultimately inflation
2: well okay under an expect expectations management paradigm what what has to happen is the fed moves an interest rate around and so when it wants to stimulate the economy we all have this idea that, okay, it lowers the federal funds rate, which makes creating credit and creating debt cheaper for banks. Therefore they'll do more of it. Well, that was never really true. I mean, banks don't operate that way. Their their maturity transformation is not how they actually make a lot of money. But as long as people believe that that's, you know, that was the stimulus. That was the idea the Fed lowers the interest rate that stimulus into the real economy. But what happens when you get to the zero lower bound, which is something economists dread, the central bankers in particular, they absolutely dread the zero lower bound because well, once you get down to zero, you can't lower interest rates anymore. And so under expectations management policy, what the hell do you do now, right? You're at zero. How, how can you get below zero? And that's where they came, the Japanese came up with quantitative easing, which is the idea that though nominal rates can't go below zero, real rates can go below zero because real rates are essentially nominal rates minus inflation expectations, so if you get people to believe in your inflation story and they start to act on it today, even though nominal rates are at the zero lower bound, they believe in your inflation. So real rates are actually even less than zero. So that's how you get below the zero lower bound into these negatives, uh, what you know central bankers anyways, believe are negative real interest rates. And where quantitative easing especially comes into it is people believe this is money printing, right? They're expanding their balance sheet. They're creating bank reserves. And so if you believe that's money, money printing, the Fed wants you to believe that it's money printing because there's their inflation expectations that get them below the zero lower bound. But quantitative easing is simply the act of an asset swap. The central bank buys an asset that, that the, uh, the commercial banking system already owns. And so it swaps a, a bond, either U.S. Treasury mortgage bond or whatever the, whatever the asset is, and the bank ends up with another asset, which is bank reserves uh, as the offset. So it's not actually money printing either. It's simply an asset swap where people focus entirely, you know, focus exclusively only on the one part of the balance, uh, one part of the equation, which is the Fed's balance sheet. And so they see the Fed's balance sheet rising. They equate that because it's bank reserves. They equate that with money printing. Bam, there you go. Inflation expectations, you've surmounted the zero lower bound.
0: So kind of on that similar idea is, do you think the Fed's balance sheet will ever stop growing?
2: Um, It depends. (laughs) That's a loaded question if I ever heard of one. Yeah, well, I mean, as long as things continue to go as they are, it's going to have to continue to go up because, I mean, that's another clue here. Quantitative easing. It's in the name, quantitative. If they knew what they were doing and it was quantitative, you wouldn't need to do it more than once, right? Because that's the whole point. We know how much money to print. We're going to print it. Boom, it's all done. The fact that they have to keep doing it is already a clue. Even if, forget about the shadow money stuff, forget about the complicated stuff. The fact that it's repeated over and over and over again tells you something's not right. We're missing something. There's a big part of the story that's missing. And so long as that big part of the story remains missing, what are central banks going to do? They're going to continue these stupid QEs one after another after another. My informal count of the Bank of Japan is I believe it's up to number 24, so, I mean, what does what QE24 look like in the U. I. United States? It looks like the same thing we're seeing now. The so Fed's balance sheet goes up. People talk about how that's money printing, but yet the real economy and the real markets don't ever actually show up as any kind of money printing at all.
1: So to take that the next step further, then uh, we could talk about MMT and maybe this fiscal policy by the uh, you know the federal government is different and that might be, a way to get inflation, uh, real inflation, uh, instead of just expectations. I don't know. Do you think, do you think we're going to be going into MMT anytime soon?
2: It's a danger because um, it sounds really good. Like communism, it sounds really good when you actually think about it. It's one of those utopian fantasies that, I mean, people have been dreaming about this since Socrates and Plato and callipolis The idea that when we give enlightened philosophers enough information and enough power they'll create the most optimal outcomes for us. We don't have to do anything. We just sit back and let it happen. You know, what my view of that is, geez, we've had these enlightened philosophers at the Federal Reserve for all of this time, and they're, they're actually, what they've actually accomplished is to allow a monetary system to get way out of control that they had no idea was existing. So now we're going to hand different kinds of enlightened philosophers even more power and control, and that's going to work out even better <laughs> come on it's even more ridiculous and preposterous Look, i mean this is a very complex system i mean and i'm not talking about this in a euphemistic term i'm talking about this in, in a mathematical sense. i'm talking about chaos theory mandelbrot equations fractal geometry those kinds of things what they tell us is that complex systems are unpredictable you cannot expect a, group, a small cadre of enlightened philosophers and technocrats the best and the brightest, trained in all of the highest mathematics and whatever, whatever kind of theory you want to jam them with, you can't put them in a room and expect them to create the predictable outcomes for a complex system. All MMT is is expanding upon ideas that have been around forever. There's nothing monetary about the, or nothing modern about this monetary theory. And it's not really a monetary theory. It's stuff that people have been thinking about for over a century. I mean, the charter list in the 1920s, it's exactly modern monetary theory. So the idea that we can put a bunch of people in a room and they'll use the federal government's power to create the exact right number of outcomes, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd on its face. But, you know, I, I think the more important point than that is, why are people looking for that kind of an answer? And, the, and it gets back to what I just said before, because people understand something's missing. Something's not right. We're missing a big part of the story. Why are, why are central banks repeating quantitative easing over and over and over again? Why are they doing these bigger and bigger m- numbers? We are missing something. The central banking world that we're taught, that you know, that the previous paradigm is not working the way it's supposed to work. And so it's quite natural for people to begin looking for other answers.
0: Actually, I really love that last part because uh, I've been doing a deep dive on MMT to prepare for other content that we've been creating And it actually has been a little shocking how much I agree with MM MMTers about what the problem is. It's just the issue is, like you said, MMTR's prescription is that we need to give greater control to the government that's going to make more nuanced decisions, uh, which I think could not be further off from the truth.
2: Yeah, but you can at least see why people are at least thinking about along those lines. Because, I mean, look, what we have now isn't working. It sucks. So let's try something out. Maybe that's a, that's a rational solution. And by the way, it it, what makes it worse is that you know you've got central bankers out there saying, what problems we've got no problems we got it all under control and so people are like you know what screw this there's, there's got to be a better way and you know, maybe if there are uh, if we do give a certain the right group of people enough power and authority and ability and information they will be able to do what they want because we're you know we, we're we're almost bred to believe in the scientific advance this scientific progress points in that direction towards a centralized approach And so, you know, there's something very natural and innate about that, which it doesn't it doesn't withstand much scrutiny. But on the surface, you can see why people are at least thinking about that.
0: So, Jeff, before we jump into de-dollarization and that idea, I would like to kind of hear, you know, what do you think? Like, obviously, you don't believe that centralized decision making is the right way to run a global economy. What is a better approach in, in your mind?
2: Well, I took a look. At, you know, I'm a free market guy. I believe in free markets, not just because of you know freedom, political things like that. I mean, that's part of it, obviously. But most of it's information. Again, I look at things as from, system, or from the standpoint of a complex system. What a complex system essentially is, is that you can never get your arms around the whole thing. You can never have enough variables in a covariance matrix that will tell you how everything interacts with everything else. Therefore, we can put a couple of regressions together and understand exactly what's going on. And the mechanism of free markets and information is prices. And so long as prices are freely made and freely available and freely made to be available, there's so much more information that can get transmitted across the entire system in a decentralized fashion. So long as we allow it and so long as we pay attention to those signals and not try to distort the signals and control those signals, but actually use them as information. And so that's my approach is to think we need to listen to the marketplace, not tell the marketplace what it should be thinking. I I just wanted to add that I'm right there with you, Jeff. I think that uh,
1: I, I used to be an idealistic free market person. I thought this was right and wrong. And now I've gone more towards you know, it's, let's not even talk about right and wrong. Let's just talk about what will get the best results. And the best results is a laissez-faire type policy. So I'm right there, right there with you. Can yeah, we just go? from an
2: informational standpoint, you can't, you know, we just talked about monetary evolution, you know, technological evolution. What is right or what is wrong technology? Well, it's not for us to decide. It's for everybody to decide. And the way we decide that is through prices and through interactions and transactions that take place on an, in an infinitesimally small, small scale, and they get rep- repeated over and over and over again. There's really no way that you can sit from above and say, "I'm going to control all of that activity." It's like herding cats. You just can't do it. Or you know, shoveling, as Abraham Lincoln once said, "It's like shoveling fleas across a barnyard." They don't get there. I mean, it's just it's it. There's utterly. It, it's just too complex to believe that we can we can you know control, manage, or even why we would even want to try to control or manage because progress itself is defined in messiness. It's defined in, you know, markets sorting out what's wrong and what's right in terms of what the market sees as what's wrong. You know, what works and what doesn't work. It's not really right and wrong. It's this is more efficient than this is. You know, this might work, but this is better. I mean, all of these really tiny, what Adam Smith called, you know, the invisible hand, all these things that we can never actually see. We want to let these things happen because that's how we learn. That's how we get progress.
0: So obviously, what you're describing is not what we are doing. And that potentially could have really negative effects for the dollar's place in the world. Can you let's talk about this idea of de dollarization? Major countries like China and Russia are, you know, actively trying to move away from the dollar. They're stashing gold. They're renegotiating oil contracts. Can we talk about like what's <laughs> happening
2: on that front? I'm not sure I believe that <laughs> <laughs> Look, Why is that narrative Florida, wrong? China and Russia have a have big dollar problem. The Chinese have the biggest dollar problem in the world. And I would believe they want to get away from the US dollar, but they are unable to get away from the US dollar. In fact, that's true of everybody around the world. What is happening is not the world is, is voluntarily de-dollarizing them. What is happening is the euro dollar system is malfunctioning, which is forcibly de-dollaring all of these various places. And so Chinese, Russians, African, I mean, oil producers, all these all these places around the world who use and need dollars have a dollar problem. And so they're trying to desperately at times create these ad hoc methods to work around what is essentially the, the, the basic truth of all of this, which is that the monetary system doesn't work. There's a shortage of dollars in the world. And so the Chinese, you know, the is a perfect example. The PetroWan was not a way for China to replace the dollar. Because, you know, the petrodollar isn't really a thing. Um, The euro dollar is the thing. And so what the PetroWan was, because dollar is a heavy, you know, is an imported commodity that China brings in quite heavily, they need dollars for it. If you can offer and get some of your um, petroleum counterparties to accept your own currency rather than dollars, that doesn't replace the dollar. That just reduces your dollar burden that much more. So the PetroWan was was actually – another way in which it it describes this global dollar shortage. It was the idea that the Chinese are trying to reduce their dollar burden because the dollar system doesn't really work for anybody. Now, the other part of that is there's nothing that can replace the euro dollar system currently that will allow the world to get out from under this, this massive dollar weight that continues to drag down the global economy. And the reason is I don't think people really understand what a global reserve currency is and what it really does. It's not just saying, hey, We're going to denominate a price of oil in our own currency. That's that's not it. What the global reserve currency is, it's a mediation tool that allows different systems to be able to transact with each other on common terms. And in order for that to happen, you have to have massive amounts of infrastructure, sophistication. Think about in terms of, you know, Triffin's paradox, Triffin's dilemma. You have to have this dollar system everywhere. It has to be able to reach into as many places as possible in order for it to reach into many places as possible in order to make this thing work, you have to have sophistication. You have to have banks operating it with it. You have to have them doing all sorts of stuff. You have to have this massive infrastructure behind it. So if you're going to replace the euro dollar system as a, as the reserve currency, you've got to create all of that infrastructure in, in beforehand before you even think about going to something else. And the fact that it's been 13 years or 11, 12 years, whatever it's been since uh, uh, since the Chinese first started to talk about the dollar problem, and then we're still with still sticking with that dollar problem. It's still a major problem today. Tells you how big of a task it is to see, you know. Everybody agrees the dollar system doesn't work. Well, everybody outside the U.S. anyway, they agree the dollar system doesn't work. But yet here it is. Your number your number thirteen of malfunction. There, it's not so easy just to replace it. And the, I would argue the Chinese aren't even trying. In fact, I know the Chinese are not even trying because they can't. There's not enough RMB supply, number one. There cannot be enough RMB to supply, number two. And RMB isn't fully convertible in the way it needs to be. And that's why you have uh, Chinese officials trying to argue softly for SDRs and other kinds of supranational currency systems. Because the dollar system right now, like it or not, that's just the way it is. There's nothing on the horizon that's going to replace it.
1: Yeah, in Bitcoin we call we call this the idea of convergence. So you know we converge towards one system, one money, and that any investment in a new system to build out a new system is you know has an opportunity cost if you would have invested it within the old system. So there, there's it's very hard to break out of this once you have converged onto one one standard. I want to take this uh, into the future or future looking. So um, is this a case where? People have to hit rock bottom before we change the system. You know, like it. once you have nothing left to lose, then, then you can actually change your system or
2: where, let's go forward a decade or two, where do you see the monetary system? Well, there's actually a couple problems wrapped up in there. Number one, I think most Americans aren't aware this is a problem. Number one, I mean, that's right for off the bat. I mean, Jay Powell says the economy is doing well. He's got everything controlled. We got flood of liquidity, all this other stuff. What the hell do we need to change the dollar for I think that's, you know, most American, the the, uh, typical American layperson would, what dollar problem? Why do we need to change the system? So, you know, we're not even, before, before we even get to, you know, what should we go to, you have to still tell most Americans that there's a problem they need to solve, right? The second big problem is they have no idea how the system actually works currently. And by they, I'm also including central bankers and economists, all the people who are feeding public opinion. You know, they have no idea how the system works either. So they can't even describe what the problem is. So Americans don't know there's a problem. And if they do kind of sense there's a problem, they have no idea what the problem is. So we're that much further behind trying to get toward, okay, what, how do we solve the problem? We, don't even, we can't even define the thing to begin with. So I think that what needs to happen from here is those things need to be taken care of first. We need to tell the American people. a lot of people around the world are a little bit further ahead in that respect because they, they see the visible, the downside of a dollar system that doesn't work. So we got to get everybody up to speed that there is a problem. Then we have to describe to them what the problem is, what this Euro dollar system actually is. And the reason we got to do that is because the Euro dollar system is how the reserve currency system actually works. It's not the issue. The issue isn't the denomination. It's how the thing actually works. And so we have to get people to understand how the thing works Before we even think about, do we use the system to go to something else? Do we scrap it? Do we need to do something else? And it's funny because um, I think you mentioned before, does it take something awful for us to actually get the kind of urgency required for that to happen? You know, the old joke about the FAA was they called it the Tombstone Agency because they would never change any regulations until after an airline crash, right? And that's, we're kind of, there's an institutional inertia here that the system, you know, it doesn't work, it's malfunctioning, but at least keeps the lights on and keeps things minimally functioning such that people aren't really aware of what's going on. So you have to, you know, maybe it does take another crisis. I mean, 2008 would have been the perfect time to do this because people are finally starting to ask the right question. Unfortunately, quantitative easing just put everybody back to sleep. So everybody's got to get what Woken up again, there has to create this sense of urgency, and you know maybe it does take another crisis like the one we're in right now, that would say, okay, look, we need to take a serious look at this monetary system because it's a central fault, central uh, fault line for pretty much everything that we see. So, we are bitcoiners, uh, and
1: this is a show for serious bitcoiners, not the pump and dump guys and the scammers that you might see out there on Twitter and things. Uh, we are long time holders we're very similar to gold bugs in that way you know we we buy and hold for the long term and and we have an idea that system is uh, going to incorporate bitcoin some way or another within the next few years, maybe five to ten years out um, i I think that it could be in the funding markets as a form of collateral, which you talk about constantly, and uh, that that is kind of the key to the whole system. But what is your take on Bitcoin? Have you thought about how maybe Bitcoin could fit into the system as it either currently is, or as you talked about, maybe after there's some sort of education and we do go to a new Bretton Woods 2.0 or something like that, do do you see Bitcoin ever um, becoming part of the global monetary system?
2: I could see it. And look, I've been a Bitcoin supporter for a very long time. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of promise in the technology behind it. I don't know enough about the, the denomination itself to make to give any kind of, you know, you guys know more about that than I do. But cryptocurrencies in general, I absolutely believe that they're going to be not just a niche part of the, the, you know, whatever the answer is moving forward. I think they'll be the central part of what's going on forward. What the problem, I mean, what we're really looking toward and what we're really trying to... Um, what were what the line, uh, landmine fields that we're trying to navigate are the, the degree of public versus private partnership because governments and central banks are not going to want to give up all authority over the monetary system. I know we wish we, you know, we want them to, we want them to get, you know, but they're just not going to do that. They're not going to say, Hey, we're just going to let the monetary system go the way we want it. We, you know, however it wants to go. So there has to be some kind of balance struck between public interest and private efficiency, usefulness, innovation, all the good things about the private system. I'm not saying because I think the public, public part of it needs to be in place, but they're not going to give it up. There's, There's got to be some part of governments and central banks involved in it because, you know, they can bring the hammer down and just outlaw whatever they want to outlaw. And so the best way forward is to marriage those two things. Get the governments to understand, yes, okay, you have a seat at the table, but it's not the seat at the head of the table and you're not going to be the biggest factor in this thing going forward. That's what you got to get the public part of it to agree to. And then the private part to the, you know, hardcore Bitcoiners is, you know, look, you gotta, there's going to be some government involvement here somewhere. And so you have to try to, you have to understand that that's going to happen and the way to get Bitcoin into its, you know, potentially its best role is to allow that to understand that that that's probably what's best for everybody. You know, we can't uh, Uh, perfect be the enemy of good. So let's let's go forward in something that works for both sides of the equation. Because look, the private side brings a lot to the table and the public side holds all the keys. So let's let them unlock the door for cryptocurrencies and allow the system to work the way we think. We all agree that it can work. And so let's just let it do it.
0: I actually have a follow-up on this. Cryptocurrencies potentially being central to the future. Kind of curious looking back, What's gold's role in your mind? Because it seems as though, at least to Bitcoiners, gold has been co-opted. It doesn't work anymore. Uh, the fact that we are in this situation shows gold's failure. What, what are your thoughts on, on gold and,
2: and its role in the future? First of all, I love gold. I'm a classical gold standard guy. But we even, even knowing that and saying that, there's no role for gold in the future. There's just not. I mean, gold was already being phased out in the 19th century. Let me say it again. Gold was already being phased out in the 19th century because people didn't want to live under a gold standard. It's cumbersome. It's, 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 it's not what modern humans want to do. They want convenience. They want, they want to be able to pay things with their phone, and you can't have your phone spit out actual gold coins, physical gold coins. And if we're not going back to a full-on gold standard where we actually have gold coins in their pockets, then there's no real reason to go back to a gold kind of quasi-standard to begin with. So what I think and what I believe is, as a classical gold standard adherent, that we need to, when we're looking forward to the monetary system that comes next, we need to think about all the things that were good about the classical gold standard and see what kind of characteristics and properties we can add to the future monetary standard that mimic the old gold standard. Gold as a physical commodity, convertibility, the things that made the gold standard work the best, just don't fit well in the 21st century and they're not going to so we need to be practical and pragmatic about it and understand that yeah gold can play a role it is a hedge it is a medium of exchange at times but it's not going to ever be the centerpiece for a modern 21st century you know digital system it's just not it just can't so we got to get the gold stuff that's good and put it into the Bitcoin stuff, you know, the, the crypto stuff that we can, whatever we can, however you want to hardwire the, uh, the, the, the um, blockchain, whatever the, whatever the winner is in the blockchain technology, let's put some golden properties into that thing before it gets let go. It sounds like you would love Bitcoin. Take 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 a deeper look.
1: Jump down the rabbit <laughs> hole, Jeff. He's a Bitcoiner. He sounds just yeah. like a Bitcoiner.
2: I wrote way back in the beginning that I was very very enthused about the promise behind crypto and Bitcoin in particular. I don't think that I've been disappointed to this to this point, I think it got out of hand in you know 2016 and 2017 when things were everybody was a Bitcoiner, but nobody had any idea what the hell it was. I think what's great about crypto and Bitcoin in particular is that it's proving itself. It's actually working out there in, in the financial system. A small part of it, but you know it's it's being tested and used, and all the bugs are being worked out, and we're, people are being you know creative and innovative in all the ways that they can apply this technology in, in the, in the uh, model. To real world situations. And I think what's lacking is the opportunity to do more of it, to show what it can do. And I am absolutely convinced that if we get central bankers and the current thinking out of the way, that there is a very big road ahead for um, a lot of creativity and innovations that we probably don't even know about right now that could solve all of these problems that we're talking about. You know, you mentioned collateral and, and Bitcoin blockchain. I, that's actually being worked on right now. The people, uh, some of the uh, support uh, financial, financial um, uh, firms that work in support behind the banks that do all their custodial work, for example, they're trying to think about how blockchain can work into um, adopting it to the collateral side of the repo market. So that kind of stuff is actually happening. What's preventing it from actually taking, you know, a, a more a, a more of a leading role in the system is institutional inertia again, like we said, you know, Americans don't really know there's a problem. Central bankers don't know what the problem is. And it's really hard to get people to understand we need to think of ahead when everybody's still thinking behind.
0: Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much for giving us your precious time. Really appreciate you coming on and explaining these things in a very understandable way for you know, someone who's not a complete Euro-dollar expert. So I think that this is going to be a fantastic resource for our listeners. Uh, for those who want to learn more about you the Eurodollar system Alhambra where can they find you?
2: I post everything I do at alhambrapartners.com. We're just a, you know, a registered investment advisor in the United States and we're working on something called Eurodollar University, which will be its own website which we hope will be a resource library to understand of all of these things. And we're, what we're really trying to do is get people the information, how they should interpret all of these things, you know, what is how do you look at a yield curve for example? What are Eurodollar futures? all these various parts of the the, uh, actual system as it is, so they can understand what we're talking about, give themselves a framework to interpret the world around them because, quite frankly, the current state of economics has done such a poor job of leaving people just in the dark about all of these big issues.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again for your time. Follow FedWatch on YouTube. Follow us on our uh, the Bitcoin Magazine RSS feed. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks on Twitter. Ansel?
1: Listeners can demystify Bitcoin jargon with my Bitcoin dictionary. If you go to BitcoinDictionary.cc, uh, people can uh, dive in deeper onto these terms so we can have a, you know, a common starting ground to talk about this stuff. So thanks again.
0: A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider, to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments do your own research